You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK's David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I'm well, Giles. Thanks for it. And I hope all our listeners are well, as particularly any that might be impacted by all the wet weather that, uh, that we're having here in the east coast of Australia. And haven't we got a special guest today, one who I think can actually uh, make a big difference longer term? Well, absolutely, yes. Um, we talked uh, earlier today with Chris Bowen, the Federal uh, Labor Climate and Energy Minister. And I guess without further, any further ado, let's hear what Chris had to say. Chris Bowen, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and congratulations on being the first Federal Energy Minister to join this platform. <laughs> well, thank you. Low bar. I don't, I'm not sure Angus was a big fan, but... Uh... More than I said, I'd come back on if we win the if we won the election, and here we are. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Look, um, just after taking um, power, you made the observation after surveying the state of the energy market that um, Angus Taylor, your predecessor, had left left you with a bit of a bin fire. I'm just wondering whether now's the time to upgrade that description to a, a shit sandwich. <laughs> your words, not mine, but they're probably pretty appropriate. Um, it is, it is a mess. And um, I mean, I think the important thing is, apart from saying it's a mess and, you know, result of nine years of denial and delay and dysfunction and stop-start policies, which it all is, uh, and apart from day-to-day management of the crisis, which I'm sure we'll come to, I mean, I think the main thing is just to point out that this makes the, the transition more important, not less, and makes the, it makes the management of the move to a renewable economy more important What's pro- what the problem is, is we've had, you know, as you know, um, megawatts leave and not enough megawatts come on to replace them uh, and not enough transmission and storage to go to manage that transition. So that's why we're in the mess we're in and never waste a crisis. Got to take this opportunity to really just reinforce that message to the community that this is actually this actually makes the policies, our policies um, and the transition or what I call the transformation of the economy to a, a renewable economy is so much more important because it's been mismanaged. Now, the deniers and delays like Angus and Dutton will use this as an opportunity to say, aha, I told you renewables are no good. But um, we've just got to double down and point out that actually renewables and transmission and storage are more important than ever. So when you come into um, power like this and look, you didn't know that you're going to win the election, but you had a plan, you had your policies um, sort of written out, um, you would have had some sort of plan of action when you came into power. The fact that this crisis has emerged and probably um, sort of intensified because of all the sort of the other global events and some of the problems in the Australian market, does that change the way that you, uh, has that stopped you? In what way has this actually sort of changed um, your program? Has it accelerated it? Has it stopped you from doing certain things that you wanted to do? Has it presented other um, imperatives? Well, I, I guess, Giles, I mean, all the above, to be frank. Um, so we made sure it didn't get in the way of our agenda. So, you know, as you know, we notified the UN of our new targets, etc., cetera, um, with representatives of peak climate groups and business and unions. And um, we, d- we did that deliberately. That was in the midst of the crisis. We did that deliberately to underline that point that I'm making, that this is more important now, not less. This is not an excuse not to 
uh, reduce emissions or make the the um, the transformation to renewable economies. They need to do more. Um, having said that, of course, you know, I, I actually literally was getting text messages at the swearing in about the crisis. Um, was on my on my way back to start briefings with my department and walked in and said, um, "Nice to meet you guys. I think we need to put this energy crisis at the top of the agenda for the briefings. Thanks very much." So of course it, you know, it changed the way we did things. And of course, you know, I spent I, I, while I was envisaging being very busy in my first weeks as minister, I wasn't necessarily envisaging being on the phone to Daniel Westerman four times a day, um, you know, checking on capacity and and whether we're avoiding load shedding, etc. Um, so of course that has meant that. There are things that I might have done by now that I haven't done because we've been managing the crisis. But by the same token, we haven't let it get in the way of the agenda. We've notified the UN. I've announced what's going to be in our legislation. The legislation is prepared, you know, et cetera. So we're getting on with it. So you've just got to make sure that you do get on with it um, at the same time. Of course, um, yeah. uh, all that time spent on managing the crisis has been time that otherwise would have been spent on some other policy initiatives. But, you know, we'll, we're getting on with it and we'll continue to get on with it. Yeah. What are the short-term options? Because everyone knows what long-term solution is. I mean, basically, um, and, and your policy sort of more or less describes that. Some people think it needs to go faster or, or, or whatever. I mean, it's the switch from fossil fuel generation to renewables and dispatchable storage. But over the short term, I was sort of discussing this with people not involved in the energy market yesterday, and they said, well, what are the solutions? And I'm going, well, I'm actually not too sure. Um, over the next three months or six months, what options do you have open to you? Well, all we can do is manage it. Um, you know, you, you're right. I mean, we are not going to get new generation on in the next three months. We're not going to get new storage on in any meaningful way. Um, and we're not going to get, you know, big transmission-wise built in the next three months. What we can do is manage it. And that's what we've been doing. Um, you know, I've got to say, states and territories, uh, and I see this as a joint responsibility. It's not, um, they're not, you know, shifting responsibility onto us and we're not shifting responsibility onto them. We're working on it very closely together. I mentioned I've been on the phone to Daniel Westerman, you know, four times a day at various points. I've also been on the phone to... You know, Matt Keane and Mick DeBrini and Lily D'Ambrosio and Tom Kutsantonis and Guy Barnett and, you know, you name it, um, several times a day at various points. And we've been working very closely together, making sure, you know, they've got powers at their, their disposal on things like freight lines and railway lines to make sure that um, coal's getting through. You know, obviously that's a short-term issue, you know. Um, obviously we all know where that where coal-fired power is heading, but in the meantime, where we've got a, 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 a coal-fired power station sitting there, uh, we've got to make sure the coal's getting through, et cetera. They've been working on all that. So it's been a really hands-in-glove exercise with with Daniel Westerman and AEMO um, and Claire Savage in the regulator. I mean, you know, they are very independent correctly, but also working closely with government um, where appropriate to make sure we keep the lights on, avoid load shedding, and we've managed to do that. I'm going to let David in very soon, but I've just got another one quick question. What has Daniel Westerman been telling you? Oh well, he's been telling, he's been, he's been giving me a waltz on all description of the market um, and capacity at various points. So he's been, you know, uh, at various points warning me, Minister, tonight it's going to be tight, you know, between six and eight, or um, we're okay tonight. Um, um, we talk about, you know, various policy options. So of course, when when they suspended the market, that was something we discussed. Um, and you know, I, uh, my role is to say, well, Daniel uh, and Claire. Um, whatever you think is necessary, uh, you will have my full public and private support. And, and they've had that. And, that, that, and again, that, that market suspension was a big call, controversial at the time, you'll remember, but the right call, the right call. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously not every call is, is as dramatic as that, um, but nevertheless, we stay in close contact. 
So I'd like to, Chris, uh, um, abstract away from the short term and just say that what it does is illustrate exactly as what you said, that if, you know, we don't replace the coal-fired generation, uh, um, we're going to have problems. And the fact that we haven't replaced it is is the source of the current problem. We haven't replaced it with something. I guess I'd like to just come back to Australia's start at the top, Australia's overall emissions ambition and I guess my, my starting point is that, one, if we exclude the sort of somewhat arbitrary land use things, actually Australia overall hasn't done much so far to reduce emissions. And equally, that the sort of science is sort of says that the, the current level of ambition globally and in Australia isn't actually sufficient to present the level of warming. And I just wondered, do you uh, broadly agree with that point of view? Well, I broadly, uh, well, I certainly agree we haven't done enough as a country. And I certainly agree that, you know, we are now starting late. Um, and that's just my point. You know, it's 2022 and we're talking about a 2030 target. And David, that's 90 months, you know, so that is not long um, for this massive transformation. And we've seen what happens when the transformation is mismanaged. Now, we've known 43%, as you know, we've discussed this before in this podcast, is the modelled impact of our policies. It's not a number that we just sort of picked out. We decided what policies we could implement, rewiring the nation. We'll probably talk about that. Um, safeguards mechanism, we may or may not talk about that. Yeah, but all the big policies, EV policies, et cetera, and it comes out at 43%. Now, as we notified the UN, not many people, I mentioned this at the press club last week, not many people sort of have spoken about this. As we notified the UN, our NDC says 43% is our target. We hope the country can do better than that. You know, we, we, we want to unleash private sector investment. We want to get the policy framework right. Um, so 43% is not a ceiling. Um, it is the modelled impact of our policies and we'll be working to do better. And the whole, we, we want the whole country to do better. And this has to be a whole country effort. The, the, we've, we've changed the most important thing, which is getting a government that gets it, gets the framework right, gets the policy settings right. That's I, the most I agree important. with that, Chris. I agree with but that. It's not a, but it's not enough. We've all got to then be all in and that's what we hope then works. I, I, so I agree. And I would say that one parliament uh, is minded to do more than the Labor Party uh, policy platform, if you were to take it in total. I mean, there would be a willingness to do more if the Labor Party was more ambitious. Uh, uh, but six, you guys have, have run on a, on a platform and want to keep your promises. I, can, I get that, but I would accept in my personal view is it's not enough. I just before we come back to electricity, uh, I just wanted to ask about cars. And I know you've got EV policies, but could you explain why the Labor Party is against having a tailpipe emission standards similar to the say the one in Europe, given that Australia's cars emit about 200 grams of carbon a litre, which is about twice what's done in Europe, and you know pretty poor by global standards. Well, David, not sure if you saw, um, I was at the National Press Club last week that was asked about vehicle emission standards. I said they'll be on the table. It was part of our national electric vehicle strategy. Um, we've got our policies we sort of mandate for, you know, electric vehicle tax cut, converting the Commonwealth fleet to electric or, or hydrogen, 75% uh, uh, by 2025. Um, you know, all those things are important. And our charging infrastructure, uh, one charger once every 150 Ks. Um, Giles and I were talking before we press record about, you know, my travelling back and forth from Sydney to Canberra in my electric vehicle and, and, and what that involves. Um, and a charge once every 150 k would be useful. But I did say we also promised to have an electric vehicle strategy and part of the things we'll, one of the things we'll consider is emission standards. Now, emission standards are easier to say 
the devil is in the design. Um, you know, it's, there's emission standards and emission standards, and there's a lot of detailed work to go. Um, you know, uh, you can have emission standards which are set at the wrong baseline and, you know, you'll either not do anything or you'll have unintended consequences. So it's not as simple as saying Australia needs emission standards. I do, I, I don't accept, you know, the, where you said the Labor Party is against them. What I do say is that there's actually a more complicated policy design than maybe, um, you know, in the public debate you might assume because it's just either should Australia have emission standards or not. And the design will be very important. So as part of our development of that national electric vehicle strategy, we'll consult very carefully and widely with manufacturers and, you know, everyone. Um, and uh, then we'll have more to say once we've done all that, all that due diligence and all that necessary and appropriate work. Yeah, uh, look, I've got one more quick question uh, before I hand back to Giles. But before I ask the question, I want to tell a joke. Uh, which is one I, I took took from a movie recently. What could go wrong? What could go what, wrong? What, what morning, go wrong? morning. <laughs> uh, there, are, there, there, there are two uh, uh, critics, uh, newspaper journalists, critics uh, on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes down and starts walking on the water, and one critic turns to the other and says, look, he can't even swim. Uh, and it's sometimes, I, I, I guess my point is that it's, it's easy to criticise <laughs> if you want to. But if I come back and look at the electricity uh, side of things, and we've, we, we could talk about the capacity market, but I, I, my view is that there isn't enough federal policy one way or another to actually ensure that all of the renewable energy that needs to get built uh, and the, and the ISP shows in its low cost scenario will get built to, to actually make it happen, right? It looks great. The costs are there. The New South Wales government is doing a lot of stuff. The Victorian government is doing a lot of stuff. Tasmania and South Australia are sort of there. I mean, what can the federal government do to actually help these things uh, go at the pace that they need to go, which is about double the historical pace in terms of building new stuff? Well, in the first instance, the main thing, as you know, is transmission and getting the ISP built. I mean, I welcomed the ISP's release uh, last week. And, you know, my predecessor, Angus Taylor, used to call it lines to nowhere, which is deeply insulting to the experts at AEMO, in my view, for a minister to say. Um, and unfortunately, the current opposition has reinforced that criticism, which I think is deeply unfortunate. And they didn't get the memo from the Australian people on May 21. But putting all that aside, in the first instance, the most important thing is transmission. The ISP is a world-class document. It provides a roadmap for the transmission we need. And as you know, and as your listeners know, the lack of transmission is holding back um, uh, renewable installations because unlike coal-fired power or, or gas-fired power generation, they're much more distributed across the country, not in one place. And that means you need a lot more transmission. The problem with the ISP is that it hasn't been enough money, hasn't been funded properly. So our rewiring the nation policy at 20 billion. Now, of course, 20 billion is not going to pay for it all. It's not designed to, was never going to, not meant to. It's designed to make um, projects which are important more viable earlier. Uh, that's what it's designed to do. So it'll combine with state sector, state government money with private sector money and get those projects built more quickly. Now, I'm not going to go into detail, but you know, I've already had very productive discussions with various state ministers about you know, their parts of the ISP and how we can progress them much more quickly. Um, and you don't, there's no sort of deals done yet or, or, or dotted line signed, but very productive discussions and we're heading in the right direction. Um, and that's a lot different to what was to the situation in April where the ISP was sort of um, officially there but ignored by government by and large. The ISP is a good document and it needs to be implemented and implemented as quickly as possible. So that's the first thing. 
Um, uh, and then, of course, then when there's a storage um, challenge after that. You know, we've got to get the storage built again. Our opponents say the rain doesn't always, sorry, the sun doesn't always blow and the, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And I say, yeah, well, the rain doesn't always fall either, but we managed to store it, although it is, has been falling quite a bit in recent days. So then there's a storage. Now, I'm happy just to touch on capacity mechanism, uh, David, given that you mentioned it. I'm happy just to touch on it. Obviously, there's a long way to go. And I understand people's cynicism about a capacity mechanism, particularly under previous management. In my view, the transformation, and I think it's more than a transition, the transformation to a, to a renewable economy has been two things in Australia, too slow and too disorderly. Now, a capacity mechanism, in my view, properly designed, you know, properly designed, encouraging storage, encouraging renewables, as well as ensuring an orderly transition and an orderly removal of uh, old technologies, a properly designed capacity mechanism is that safety net to make the transition or the transformation go faster, not slower. Uh, and that's that's how we'll design it. Now, um, the ESB's got a CISFAR, uh, ministers, state and territories, and I, and ministers and I uh, are going to have continued discussions about how we make this transition more orderly and make it faster. And that is the objective of a capacity mechanism, in my view. Because I tell you what, we've had some close calls in recent weeks. If we actually get blackouts or serious load shooting, one, that's a bad thing. Two, we will lose community support for the transition. You know, if the lights are being turned off and Dutton and Canavan are out there going, aha, I told you renewables are no good, we will lose community support. So we, we've got to avoid that at all, almost all costs. And a capacity mechanism will help us do that. And the challenges we're working under, you know, snow is running 18 months late. Um, previous government knew that, didn't bother to tell anyone. Um, uh, I was informed of that in my early days as minister. Um, these are the sorts of challenges that we're going to have. And a capacity mechanism will be a very useful safety net underneath that. But I stress, from my point of view, when we're designing it, it will have uh, faster transformation, more orderly, as its two objectives. Um, that's fair enough, um, Chris. Um, but I guess most of the people in the market, apart from a few cop players, but even I've actually talked to them over the last couple of days, think that the capacity struck capacity mechanism structure presented by the ESB is not really fit for purpose because it tries to do too much and and, and it's a bit like trying to sort of plug an analog phone into a digital network. And as you say, there's two problems here. We've got to manage the exit of coal, um, and then we've also got to encourage new renewables and new dispatchable. You almost and, and most the recommendations from people like Van Jotso and from um, Tim Nelson and, um, and the other people at Ibudrola and, and other people suggesting you've got two different problems here, manage them separately. If you're going to manage the exit of coal, put in a mechanism for that, that could be like a, um, a, a loan or an auction or a managed exit or, or, or whatever. And then you're able to actually create a, me a capacity mechanism that is actually designed for the future technologies, for the, for the flexible capacity. And that's, that's got to be the key. It's got to be around flexibility and trying to ram coal into that particular part of the mechanism is actually just going to make it not very fit for well, purpose. So, so what do you think about well, those I, ideas I, I, about separating the two issues and separating the mechanisms? Well, all, all I'd say about Charles is I agree about flexibility. I mean, obviously, that's the key, and coal is not flexible. Um, but it's, you know, nevertheless, it is an important baseload provider at the moment. Um, and so we've got to manage that transition. In terms of detailed design, you know, the ESB has done good work. It's got us this far. And now there's a deal of work in coming months for state and territory ministers and me to do together to get a fit for purpose design. It's going to have some flexibility because, you know, Queensland, the state of the Queensland grid is very different to the Victorian grid, just to 
for example. Um, New South Wales is in a different category again. Um, but again, you know, I think all the ministers, Labor, Liberal and Green, uh, all agree on the sort of objective. Frankly, that's why they pay me the medium money um, to bring it together to, um, you know, get a system at the end of the day that works. But it's not as simple as, frankly, with all due respect to all the everybody involved, I've got a lot of respect for the names you just mentioned, it's not as simple as all capacity mechanisms good or all capacity mechanisms bad. Most systems around the world, it's comparable to us, as you know, have a capacity mechanism, but they're not all the same. And ours won't be a carbon copy of anybody else's. It'll be carefully designed. It'll be carefully designed. And exactly. by a government that actually wants the transmission to happen faster and more orderly. Well, well, that's a good thing too. I guess I guess the main point is it, it's, it's going to be difficult unless it looks something completely different to what's been proposed until now. And I guess there's a bit of frustration that the ESB has not moved actually very far. They've been working on this for a couple of years and keep on coming up with the same thing, which everyone goes, no, no, that's not quite right. We've got to get this, this done. And I think um, I just get worried about whether we've got enough time to come up and sort of seriously deal with proposals that people want to see on the table. Um, but anyway, and one of the other parts of that is the environmental objective. And the ESB has said itself, well, it's hard to, for us to design unless we actually know what the environmental objective is. And of course, we don't know what the, um, the national energy objective doesn't actually have environment as part of it. Mm. How do we make that clear to them? Because they're kind of treading water at the moment and using that as an excuse yeah. not to have moved further forward. So is there something that you can do to intervene and say, okay, um, let's, you, you, you need to align this to Paris targets? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I've asked for, you know, that they said ministers need to give us an emissions reduction target to make this work. I think that underlines my point that a capacity mechanism well designed mm -hmm. can actually have that as an objective. That's what I'm saying, basically. The ESB, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not here to criticise ESB. They've done their job, but now it's over. It's going to be increasingly over um, to ministers um, to make the policy decisions uh, and including, you know, our, our target of 43%. How does, how does, how do we design a system which encourages that uh, emissions reduction because that's got to be part of the objective of a capacity mechanism as the ESB recognised. Now, ESB, to be fair, it's sort of a bureaucratic organisation. Um, it's It's got many masters that answers to all the state and territory ministers and me. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's they've got a hard job. So they've said, well, tell us what emissions reduction you want to be built into this. Um, now, as I said, that's, that's going to be, I think, increasingly um, clear as we make the design more finalised. And, you know, I, I'm keen to have it done before 2025 because I think we need a well-designed mechanism in ASAP. But having said that, we're not going to do it tomorrow because that does have to be well-designed and we're not there yet. Can, Chris, can I come back to a, to a different topic uh, again? Um, because I think we'll see more on, as you say, on the capacity market design as, as it evolves. I wanted to talk about the emissions uh, uh, reduction scheme, you know, which was the centrepiece of your pre-election platform and looking at the big emitters. And my context for this is that about 40% of Australia's emissions, scope one and scope two, actually come from exports of one sort or another. And probably about a third of Australia's overall exports come from the actual production of, of, of oil and coal and, and, and gas. Uh, and most of those uh, emissions are in by the big uh, people covered by the uh, emissions reduction scheme. And they're all exports and energy intensive. And so they're going to be treated differently, if you know what I mean, or have, get special treatment because of their international exposure. So when I, when I look at the overall problem, you know, we want to get reduce that, that those emissions a lot. The emissions that actually come from the coal and the gas production, never mind the actual burning of them. 
But the, the emissions reduction scheme uh, safeguards mechanism that you've outlined and the tightening of that, it, it looks like that's going to be a fairly tough piece of work as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated piece of work. And look, frankly, it was a big political risk for us to do because it was, you know, we knew um, that uh, our opponents would paint it as a carbon tax, which they tried to do and did. Um, and, you know, clearly they had some help in the media with that particular argument. So it was a big big call for us to do, but we did it because we knew it was such important policy. I mean, you don't reduce emissions as a country unless you reduce them from your 215 biggest emitters. Having said all that, um, yes, there's some design work to go. Uh, my department's going to issue a consultation paper. I hope they have it out in August, um, some of the more detailed design, because we do have to, there's no point, you know, um, transferring emissions to other countries. We do have to manage competitiveness as we go. Um, and the beauty of the safeguards mechanism is because it, it deals with 215, you know, facilities, you can actually be pretty careful in your design, you know, because it's not economy-wide, um, you know, with unintended consequences, you know exactly what facilities you're dealing with. So you know exactly they, what, what sort of competitive pressures are under, you know, exactly to some degree at least what technologies they have available or will have available. Um, so the clean energy regulator and the department and all of us can take that into account. Um, so that's why I, I kept the safeguards mechanism as a policy architecture because I thought the actual integrity of the architecture was quite elegant, um, you know, identifying these facilities and saying they've got to reduce emissions. The trouble is the baselines have been set with more holes than a piece of Swiss cheese and emissions have gone up from them. So it's not actually the safeguard mechanism itself. It's the way the previous government implemented it, hence our, our policy. But, uh, you know, I do recognise that, I mean, I think your question to me is it's difficult, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, because, you know, we don't reduce emissions from the 215 biggest emitters without, you know, some difficult conversations and some careful design. But that, that works well underway as well. We've, you know, had a, I've had probably as many meetings with my department about that as I have any other issue uh, in our first month. And um, as I said, hopefully there's a, a good discussion paper out in August from the department going through some of the more detailed design elements. I'll be looking forward to reading that. Uh, one of the uh, comments that Adam Bant made that I did listen to was uh, that, you know, what happens if there's new projects like, uh, for instance, the Scarborough gas project? Uh, do, you, do you raise the overall baseline? Or, I mean, I suppose that's something that shows up in the discussion paper, is it? Yeah, so anything, you know, as you know, we haven't changed the threshold, so it's 100,000 tonnes, um, and that won't change. But if a new project comes in, which is, which is above 100,000 tonnes, and they're covered by the safeguard mechanism. And that project will then be covered by, they'd have their own baseline set, you know, by the clean energy regulator. Um, so the, it's all on a trajectory to net zero by 2050 is, is the principles that we've outlined. Um, so both the total and the individual projects would have to be then seen in that framework. Other quick questions, um, Chris. Um, you talked about Snowy Hydro before. I'm a bit confused about what the status is. You've said that you've been told it's been delayed 18 months. Until what date? Because every time I hear from the Snowy Hydro people, not that they've actually said anything on the record, they're saying, oh, well, that's not quite right. But can you actually clarify what you've mm. been told? No, no. Well, it's, well, it's running 18 months late now. I think what they're referring to is they're going to try and get that back. Right? They're going to try and make some of that time up. And I do understand this is a complicated project, right? This is a very complicated engineering project very steep tunnels. Um, so, you know, I'm not being critical of any of the engineers or designers. Um, and indeed, there's been COVID-related delays both directly, uh, you know, on the site and uh, indirectly with supply chain issues. So that's all, That's all. Um, you know, all understandable. I would have preferred people were honest about it. 
the previous government pre-election. Um, but you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're an optimist. Uh, well, they say it's a signature policy. Okay, well, <laughs> if it's a signature policy is running 18 months late, maybe you want to tell somebody. Um, but it is, as, as we speak, it's running 18 months late. That's the formal advice to me. Um, now, I, I hope they can do a bit better than that and get some of that back. And I, and Snowy's going to work to do that. I think what that's, that's what that's referring to. But it is very clearly that's how late, late it is running as we speak today. Now, there's always risks, you know. I, I hope they get some of that time up. It could it could get worse, you know, with all due respect to everyone, you know, uh, we don't know. Um, but as we speak today, it's running uh, 18 months late. Over the last 10 years, I think there must have been 150 at least new wind and solar farms um, opened around Australia. Um, I don't think the coalition attended the opening of a single one of them. Um, will you turn up to the next one that's opened? Oh, well, the next one I'm invited to. Can't wait. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with Shadow Minister um, visiting um, solar and wind uh, farms and actually went inside a wind turbine. Not sure if you've done that, Charles or David, but that's interesting. Um, actually going in, didn't go up all that high, but went up a little bit. Um, so there's a lot going on in, inside them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's important, one, for, you know, seeing what's happening, and two, frankly, for the message it sends to investors. You know, there's a government that welcomes this investment, and I think, previous government sent all the wrong messages and there's a lesson to be learned there we don't need to be told the lesson we all know that but um you know these things are important you know the actual as important as the policies are just the the the, the spirit of the government's approach and the rhetoric is, is actually very important investors and decision makers around the world actually watch that very closely so things like ministers not attending uh openings at wind and solar farms actually we we, we joke about it but it's also, but it also is something um, pretty serious in that if you're not sending those messages, you're sending the wrong messages. Well, no, I agree uh, with that. I think signalling is very important. Uh, just something like Macron putting his hand on someone uh, and holding it, is, it sends a big message. So yeah. I, I, I get that at the top, it's the signal, but also poli- actions also matter as well as signals. Uh, when I look at the wind and solar that needs to be built um, uh, and the storage, uh, I'm just wondering if things like um, if increasing the RET target, you know, which is hopelessly inadequate relative to what the ISP wants, um, or, or you know, making um, uh, large certificates fungible with with emission safeguards uh, type stuff. I mean, it seems to me there's more that you could do. I mean, you you could, if you wanted to, put a, a carbon price through federal parliament very easily. You, you won't be doing that. I get that. But there's a lot more that you could do. There's a, there's a mood to do more. I'm just wondering how you're thinking about those sorts of things. Well, well there's, of, of course, there's always there's always more to do. As I said, you know, NDC says, um, you know, we hope the country does better. Um, you know, the previous government talked about meeting and beating. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously we want to do as much as we can, but we want to also, and we will be very clear, meet our election commitments. I find this argument, I'm not having a go at you, David, but, um, and you're not saying this, but generally the argument that, oh, congratulations on winning the election. Now what we'd like you to do is not implement your policies. Uh, you know, a month later, um, we won the election with, a, with a, a set of policies. We intend to implement them. As I said last week, and I said this publicly and privately to the crossbench, ideas which are consistent with our framework and consistent with our agenda and consistent with our mandate, I'm all this. So, you know, if the crossbench has um, suggestions which complement that framework, uh, I, I, I want to work across the parliament just because we've got 77 seats doesn't mean I have 100% of the answers. Um, but 
having said that, we've won the election. So ideas that aren't consistent with that agenda, you know, I respect people's right to put them forward, but we won't be progressing them. So um, I think that's an important distinction. But where there's an idea, whether it's from, you know, an independent crossbencher or another political party, or if they could come up with any of them, the opposition, um, you know, and it's consistent with the agenda, then sure, I'm, I'm happy to take that on board. But this, the idea that, you know, the Labor Party should say, well, we won the election and now we're not going to implement, you know, our 43% target or implement the policies as we saw it, um, that, that, well, we, that doesn't end well and that, again, erodes that community support, which I think is, you know, pretty important. I mean, we just had a climate election and, you know, I've been involved in some climate elections and on the wrong side of them. This is a climate election where we won um, and it's very important to keep that momentum and sure to work with the crossbench. And, you know, I've got a, I'd like to think I've got a good relationship with the crossbench, um, but within that framework of the mandate we sought and the mandate we received. Just a couple of quick questions to wrap up, Chris. Then um, um, the um, the mandate that you've got, and everyone sort of understands that um, you'd be given, you know, a, a bin fire as the shit sandwich, that we, as we said at the start. How long do you think that honeymoon will last until, if the crisis continues, then uh, people start blaming Labor the government for the for the problems that they see, rising bills and things like that? I mean, you know, do you have to move quite quickly? Oh, look, I mean, we have to move as quickly as we can because it's the right thing to do. Um, I, I, I think, you know, this whole, I mean, the, again, the opposition has been out there. I don't know if you've seen it. It's so ridiculous, you know, saying, oh, the new government's been talking about renewables and that's spooked coal-fired power generators out of opera. I mean, uh, have you ever th- heard anything so stupid? Oh, I mean, creative. <laughs> I mean, what, what, the coal-fired power generators are sitting there going, oh, Bowen just said solar panels, so we better switch off. I mean, I mean, I've never heard anything so ridiculous in all my life. Um, and I think you know that sort of the people see through that, and they know because they've seen the nine years of delay and dysfunction. They know there's a lot of catching up to do. But sure, we're the government, so we have to get on with the job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the balance strike. Yes, we've inherited a mess, which we have, and you know I don't mind saying so. But I'm not sitting around wringing my hands and saying, "Oh, this is all terrible." I mean, we're going at a pace because yeah. we've wasted. Almost a decade. Don't have a second to waste now. Unlocking the um, um, the supply of electric vehicles. I mean, I think electric vehicle sales are just one percent of um, overall car sales in the month of June. That's a pretty sad state of affairs compared to the rest of the world, and it's actually a bit of a slowdown. Um, what's your strategy then? I mean, apart from maybe emissions policy, or is, it, is an emissions um, um, you know emissions control on, on on engines the best way to unlock that supply constraint? Well, it's one of the ways, which, as I said before, we'll look at in our EV, national AV strategy. Um, so just quickly recapping what, what else we're doing. Um, there's our EV tax cut that'll come in. That that, that actually is effectively one yep. Yeah, Parliament hasn't sat yet, so we'll pass the legislation and there's a mechanism whereby we can ask the tax office to apply it, yeah. um, you know, backdate it. Um, we'll do that. So that's that's important. And that complements state rebates. So you put the state rebates where they exist together with our tax cut and you're starting to get, you know, some serious price reductions. That's good. Um, I am serious about the Commonwealth fleet um, for two reasons, Giles. Um, one, it's big. It's 10,000 cars. So that makes a difference. And manufacturers will notice that, you know, if you want to win the Commonwealth fleet contract, you've got to be providing no emissions vehicles. That's big. What, what excites me even more about that is that the Commonwealth turns over its cars every three years. So as you know, at the moment, there's no secondhand EV market. Um, to speak of, but in three years' time, once we start and we start selling our Commonwealth cars, um, there's all these EVs on the second-hand market. And for young people in particular or people who, uh, you know, just buy second-hand cars because it's what they can afford, all of a sudden they'll become 
options yeah. and available, and I'm very excited about that. Well, that's very good. All you need now is a few electric vehicle charges at Parliament House. Well, Parliament House, yes, I'm waiting for a new speaker to be elected, and then one of my first acts will be to write to uh, the new speaker and say, um, how about some EV charges? Because there's a few of us now, and at the moment um, I drive my EV from Sydney to Canberra, which is great, um, but uh, I trickle charge in the Parliament House car park, <laughs> and it's very slow. <laughs> And uh, it's fine if I'm just jotting around Canberra for a couple of days, but if I, sometimes I drive to Canberra in the morning and want to drive back to Sydney at night, it's no good. Um, so uh, then I've got to make other arrangements. So we need some charges at Palm House. But, of course, our other policy is one charger once every 150 k's, fast charger once every 150 k's on the highways, and that's we'll, we'll implement that too as well. So, Chris, I, I, I drive an EV, and I've been up and down from Brisbane to Melbourne. It's fine if you're on the on the highway, but I agree with you. A lot of the country centres don't have it. Um, Giles may have, want to say something, but I just want to say thank you on, on my behalf for joining Energy Insiders, and I very much hope you'll be uh, able to come back in a year or two and, and, and report on progress because one of these days I want to ask you, what's your uh, what do you think your biggest achievement is as Energy Minister? But uh, we'll save that for maybe next time. Look forward to it. And uh, as you know, another one of our policies is I'll report annually to Parliament um, on progress. So I'll report to Energy Insiders, no problem, and I'll report to Parliament as well. <laughs> and, and hopefully still within a year or two. There you go. I think that was a very pessimistic, David. But uh, once again, thank you, uh, Chris, for joining us. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, guys. That was Chris Bowen, the Federal Climate and Energy Minister. We'll just take a short break. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, Jet Charge is paving the way for an electric future together. David, I think people in the Liberal Party are very upset that he's put climate before energy, but um, I guess it's actually nice that we've got the, the two together. Um, he has been presented with a bit of a shit sandwich. It's going to be interesting to see how long the goodwill lasts, but it is grateful, finally, that we do have a plan to move forward with. Uh, I think it's great to, to hear the Federal Minister getting out there and publicly supporting um, the AEMO and um, uh, the AER and the AEMC. I think each of those organisations uh, could do better, uh, but uh, just having uh, this, knowing that um, you're the boss is on your side uh, is a great way to improve things in the first instance, and I think we've already seen good signs of cooperation from the state energy ministers. It is complex. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved. Uh, the issues are not that easy. Uh, but with goodwill on all sides, uh, I think we can make some ground. And the first thing is to get, you know, the sand out of the gears, which happened because for a long time, the federal government has been, frankly, obstructionist. I don't, there's no other way to think about it. And now it's not. And there's still being obstruction as Angus Taylor's been opposing a local solar and um, battery storage thing in his yes, electric. but he's not the government just... anymore. <laughs> no, but they're still at it. But anyway, no, but it's absolutely true. What do you think about capacity markets, um, David? I know we sort of talked a little bit about it last week's podcast with Alan Ray. Um, Chris Bowen discussed it today. Um, it seems like there's a bit of room for manoeuvre there, um, but we haven't actually seen any. Uh, well, we haven't seen the flexibility that we want in the in the in in the mechanism yet from the ESB. 
The trouble is that the politics are always getting in the way uh, of what needs to be done. There's a political reality, there's a climate change reality, and there's a, 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 an electrical system reality, and they just uh, there's only a little bit in the middle in that Venn diagram where they overlap. So I think um, uh, uh, the, the trouble with the capacity market is it's going to take it, progress on it's been slow because there's opposition, right? It's uncertainty as to whether coal should be included, and that opposition, significant opposition, means that it can't be steamrolled through in the way that the designers originally thought, and therefore it gets bogged down, and that's what's happened. We all know that we want new dispatchable capacity. It's absolutely certain there's going to be a mismatch as, via, as variable renewable energy grows between times of overproduction and times of underproduction, and you have to have some form of storage to, to uh, help to get the benefit of all that overproduction and uh, use it when there's underproduction. So we have to have new investment, not just use the coal. At the same time, as we're seeing right now, the coal can't just exit on, in, on day one. It has to be kept around for long enough for the new production to be built. So the first thing is to get the right investment signals for new production of all sorts, new wind, new solar and storage. Perhaps the capacity market will help with the storage, but I still question whether we've actually got enough policy uh, we've certainly got the price signals, but enough policy to get all the wind and solar actually built, you know, to get the RIT process. As we talked on the last week's podcast, it still takes two years to get uh, anything that involves an RIT through from uh, first thought of to actually, uh, yes, let's do it. Two years is too long, right, in the current thing. So, uh, and we do need a plan to manage coal exits, and Queensland has to come up with its coal statement. Sorry, I'm talking a lot, Giles, but I mean, these things are all well known. We repeat them every week. Uh, and I guess we'll keep on repeating them until we, until we get an outcome. Don't apologise, David. It was a very neat summary and just helped me clarify my thoughts on it. So that was all fine. Um, look, we will just wrap up very briefly. I just wanted to mention a couple of other things happening. Um, we've seen things getting um, pretty um, squeaky in the electricity markets today, this week. Um, it's a bit too much with the timing of this podcast to know what's going to happen. But um, in some states, particularly Queensland, we're getting close to the market cap. Um, trigger points so it's going to be interesting it'd be fascinating to hear what the discussions are behind the scenes um, there's a lot of coal um, outage there's capacity being withdrawn all of a sudden no one really knows what's going on and why um, but um, on the plus side um, this week I think it's worth noting too that Arena has come out with progress on its battery storage round this is the one that's focused on grid forming inverters what they call advanced inverters you know, absolutely crucial for the formation or the security of a grid, which is a moving towards you know very high renewables and high 90% or even 100%. So we've got 54 proposals. They've shortlisted 12, three gigawatts of capacity, 7,000 megawatt hours of, of 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 capacity, and I guess those will be chosen over the next something. So that's that's that that's good. That's a move forward. Although. I would point out that some of the grid-forming batteries that have actually been built um, are still actually not doing the grid-forming battery part of their unit yet. So there seems to be some sort of delays in actually building these things and having them deliver those services into the grid. So, But I, I guess um, everyone's had a few other things to think about. David, unless there's anything else to report, I think that's probably it for a week. And um just like to thank um, Chris Bowen, um, for joining us and being very patient with our technical issues. Uh, it was um, very good of him to hold on while we sorted that out. Of course, we'd like to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. And um, we'll be back again next week. 
Uh, we will indeed. Hopefully the weather will improve, but I'm not holding out uh, any hands. Hopefully electricity prices will be a bit lower, but uh, until we actually, I don't actually understand why uh, one and a half gigawatts of coal was withdrawn very suddenly yesterday. And uh, so there's a few confusing things in this. They're trying to get to the cumulative price uh, threshold. Um, uh, it, uh, but, but why would the Queensland government do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit complicated, but uh, nevertheless, we'll be talking about it again. No doubt. Thanks, David. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid-design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.